Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Round four of the Six Nations has ended. Lots of points at Twickenham. The Welsh defence confounding Scotland, who rather helped... In that regard, an Ireland stepping up against a France team. God knows where they were. God knows where. They, I, I've no idea. Apart from Exeter, I've nothing to say. <laughs> I don't know what to say about France. But we will find something later on. Because with me to discuss it all is the former England and Lions fly half, Rob Andrew. Hello, Rob. Hi, Brian. England. Uh, I call this the Armageddon option. It was when you've got. Docker Senior, you've got Mano Tuolangi, you've got Ben Teo, you've obviously got strike runners. And I wrote about this in my Telegraph column, and, and it was this. Players who I call power carriers are players that I define as ones where they are, the defence automatically thinks, right, I cannot take a chance on this guy and drift. I've got to stay square because if I don't get a full shoulder tackle on him, I've no chance of bringing him down. And that has consequences, whether or not he gets the ball, etc., etc. If you have only two or three or four of those, good teams from set defences can manoeuvre their best tacklers to make sure they take the runners, they can double tackle and so on. The problem comes, and I think this is where what Italy found is, when you've arguably got five in the pack and you've got Genge, Sinclair, Cruz, Billy Vinopola, Shields, and then three in the backs. You can't do that all the time. Defence is always a compromise between what you assume will happen, what you think will happen. You've got to cover the backfield for kicks you've, and all sorts of things. And I think in the end, Italy have lost their previous games by 13, 10 and 11 points. And England put 40 on them. And I think it's simply the case that when you have too many of those, and then that's before you even add the pace of Elliot Daly and Johnny May, you, you just can't cope. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And it's what it's what Eddie wants to build this England team on, isn't it? We said it right at the start of the tournament, actually, that it, certainly coming out of the Ireland game, it looked like an England side in the mould of 2003, you know, even even bigger and better in the sense of ball carrying in the, the forwards who can carry the ball now in the front row and the back row. And then you put all of these guys, Tuilangi and Thokinasiga and, and Tio in, either you can't stop them or they get across the game line. So the next phase after they've carried has taken out three or four defenders and it's three or four yards across the game line. So when you come around the corner, you're on the front foot as opposed to being stopped on the game line. 
or you miss them or you use them as decoys and the defenders get sat down as, as the defender. And then you've got the likes of May or, as you say, Daly on an outside break or sometimes Tua Lange who can actually go on an outside break himself. I mean, that, that line from Daly, which he ran three or four times, is usually a suicide line, isn't it? They're going across the field because it's a very easy tackle line. But, but he's you... got the pace to get around it. And once he does, then... You've got a two-on-one. Well, it's it, it's sort of it's almost like schoolboy rugby, isn't it? Where the outside centre, which is where Daly spent a lot of his life, and the, and you know, remember Jerry Guska and and Matthew Tate and Brian O'Driscoll, guys. If you give them an outside line, and the the inside defender is just sat down a little bit and and hasn't and he gets stood up because he's just trying to help his mate on the inside in case Tuolangi gets the ball or or Vunipola or whoever then that player who can go on a genuine outside line, and there aren't many that can do it, yeah. they're gone. And then it's just a walk-in. So that, again, that balance is is close to being undefendable, particularly if you've got some footballers around you. My my only comment and question would be, do you need both Tuolangi and Tio, Or do you want Tuolangi in the outside centre position? Have you lost another, a footballer, perhaps? Yeah, so you've got this balance of do well, you look, have... I mean, if he's on the bench... Absolutely. And that's... Whether you start Teo or Slade, you've got options. And that's the that's the beauty of the, what what is now being developed with this team. So he's got options, you know, Ford can Pity come on. come 12 months earlier, actually. Maybe, and, and maybe... I mean, I think that's where he was trying to get to. He's always yeah. had Ben Teo in, Manu's been injured, Slade's been coming through the, the ranks... They've been trying to work out what to do with Daly. They've stuck with him at fullback when a lot of people wouldn't have stuck with him at fullback, and he gives that fullback running option. So you've got all these players now. The challenge is, can you get them in the right place? And what happens when the squeeze comes on, as it did in Cardiff, in 20 minutes under... They've only been squeezed for 20 minutes this year, yep. and it was in Cardiff. Yep. So all of this stuff against a rubbish French team at Twickenham, quite frankly, a pretty poor Italian team at Twickenham, and you know probably the same will happen against Scotland, given all their injuries. That It's almost irrelevant, because in the real pressure mm -hmm. cooker... That under for 20 minutes, they've only had been under the cosh for 20 minutes and they couldn't find an answer. That's slightly the more worrying thing because with this team against an Italy side or a f rubbish French team, I mean, what we, you know, we will talk about them. I, th th this, it's embarrassing. And actually what is even more concerning for the Six Nations, this is not the greatest tournament in world rugby when you have matches. There's only been about two matches that have been a contest mm -hmm. in the whole tournament. Now that's we know what's going to happen in most of the games. It's a two-tier competition: England, Wales, and Ireland. And none of them have played brilliantly in this tournament. The other three have been pretty average, to be honest. So there are some big issues there that that are for another day. Okay, well, let's talk about the man of the moment, Smoking Joe. Joe talking to see I mean, no, no coach would ever say to a player, "Yes, carry the ball in one hand. It's really good." Because it's unsafe, you get it knocked down. But he obviously has such control and such huge hands that he carries it properly in the sense that, you know, like the basketball players in America can actually hold the ball. Yeah. And if it's secure like that, what it always means is you've got one arm to fend, never named being six foot three, agile and quite quick. So he can pass out to the back of his hand, 
You know, you can do that loop pass, which he did again. You saw him have the maturity not to just throw one of these passes when he got near the line. Thought, no, it's not on, actually. I'll just hold it there. Better thing. And again, whilst he has things to work on, you can't put these things into players. They have to be there. And England have got Johnny May, Jack Noel, Ashton and Thokinasina. For me, it's a question, as in the options that they've now got when those power carriers are there, of just making sure they use them selectorially right, getting the right starting 50 in the bench, and then making sure they make the right decisions at the right time. But what I think is absolutely crucial is the way they use the kicking game. They have to understand it's like the right to go wide. There's a right to kick early as well. Yeah. And they just simply stopped against Wales because they couldn't make as much ground as they wanted with the carriers. But that doesn't mean to say you still don't have to do it. Yeah, and, and actually they kick badly in Cardiff as well. as well. You know, that's the other thing. If you're gonna whatever you, whatever tactic you choose, you've got to you've got to carry it out well. But no, Thokken the Seager, I mean, what's not to like about him? He did he did a nice two on one when he put Dan Robson in as well. Just, just simple. The flair of these guys, and look, there's another debate here around you know, all these Fijians, Samoans, Tongans. We said five or six years ago that you could see the Vunipolas coming through the age group, you could see Tuolangi, you could see Joe coming through. It's completely transformed the dynamic of an England side because of, if you like, the island heritage of these players. But let's, I mean, let's also give credit. I mean, I thought that both Genge and Sinclair, albeit given the opposition, were absolutely outstanding. And and this is this is this is the athlete and this is the modern the new modern day prop second row. We haven't talked about Mario Toji because he's been injured for mm. the whole tournament. And and when he first broke onto the scene again, extraordinary physicality, extraordinary skill set. Jamie George's left handed pass. Look, anyone, I mean, anyone, you know, can, any hooker can do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, well, well, for a start, you wouldn't have been <laughs> stood there, let alone been able to pass it off your left hand. So we're talking about a range of skills. What hasn't ever changed, which is the key to all of this, is the handling of pressure in the biggest moments mm-hmm. in the cauldron of Cardiff. Yeah. And, and that's the bit that I think in some ways. Eddie will probably be most disappointed okay. is that they couldn't carry through that the game in Cardiff and carry on from half time tactically they needed to change things and Eddie, Eddie's blaming himself for that and they've clearly done a lot of kicking because all the blooming forwards are kicking the ball now as well so <laughs> yeah. so they've obviously over they've I think they've slightly overdone the kicking which is what happened in Cardiff now that's rich coming from me but it's clear that they spent a lot of time tactically going into Dublin and they carried it on against France, no fullbacks, and they kept doing it. And you, we've been there where if a team gets stuck in a, in a tactical p- way of doing things, it's very yeah. hard to get out you of You get it. into the one last push, Field Marshal Haig, don't you? <laughs> it will work this time. Anyway, all roads lead to Cardiff for the last round of the Six Nations. Wales going for... Another Grand Slam. It's in the bag, isn't it? Martin Williams is on the line. He'll tell us. You can't not do it at home, can you? Good evening, Moro. Um, <laughs> uh, look, there'll be some anticlimax if, if we don't. That's for sure, I think. Um, you know, we've been quite lucky over the last 
what was it, 10, 15 years that every sort of championship decider, Grand Slam decider has happened to be in Cardiff. And yeah, there's something every, strange about that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And, mm. and, and every time we've managed to come away with a win and, you know, you know, it's like everybody's dancing in the streets. So, like, it's going to be a huge expectation this week. It's going to be a huge build-up. You know, like I say, it'll just... I, I, I can't imagine it if they don't win, but... I would say of all those games that have become the deciders, we spoke about it last night on the on the show that um, this is the best team coming to Cardiff, you know, to spoil the party. So they're going to have to play better than I think both teams actually are going to have to play better than they have all competition. Well, I, I agree with you, and win. I think they both will be. But if there is an area about which you are worried with Ireland, what would it be? Their ability to, to you know, they've got big game players, you like the Sexton's Murray's, you know, they've beaten the All Blacks, they've won European uh, Champions Cups, they know how to win big games. They're an unbelievably well-drilled team that, you know, know, know how to win big games. And they've got uh, two excellent coaches in Schmidt and Farrell, and I forget Simon used to be as a forward coach as well. So, I'm, you know, they've got threats everywhere. Uh, they haven't quite hit their straps and they are due a big game. And, you, you know, and, you, and if you think, oh, if all the expectation is, was on Ireland coming into this campaign, if they actually lose two games to Wales and England, it'll be, you know, be a, a really poor outcome for them. So I'm just wary that they sort of, you know, they'll want to spoil the party. There's a bit of edge between Wales and Ireland. There always have been for the last 13, 14 years. And they are, you know, they've got the players who can come here and win. There's no doubt about that. But I, I think, like you said, we saw two weeks ago what the what Cardiff can do for you um, and do for the Welsh players. And hopefully we'll see a repeat of that. I'm, I'm sort of sat here. I'm struggling to try and work out which of the teams know where they're at at the moment in terms of you know, expectation coming into the tournament. And Ireland haven't had a big one yet, have they? And and there were signs against France, albeit, I mean, I don't know where France are, just awful. But if, if they can come, if Ireland can bring some of that game to Cardiff, and Wales obviously, great win over England, but England sort of lost their way in the second half. So I think this could be the best game of the tournament so far. I hope it is, because I don't think there have been that many good games, to be honest. Yeah, it's a really difficult one. It was incredible. You know, we sat there and Wales won 13 in a row, but everybody's questioning how good a team they are because, you know, they're not, they're not playing scintillating rugby. They're, they're one of the most dogged teams and the most difficult teams, you know, you're ever going to try and beat because their defence is so organised and, you know, they'll play to the end and they've just got that knack of winning. You know, they could have easily lost that first game against an awful French team, but France gifted us. Uh, gifted Wales our second half. You know, Hafton puffed against Italy, which is understandable with all the changes. Played brilliantly for 30 minutes against England. You know, I thought England were the better team for 50 minutes, just, you know, failed to adapt. And then I thought, right, this is the real Wales on Saturday against Scotland, the first half. And whether it was looking forward to this Saturday or just, you know, Scotland coming back into I'm not sure. So I agree with you. In Ireland, we're not quite sure where they are. I think what, what worries me a little bit as well is Ireland... I think that psychological edge over Wales. I think they've sort of done really well over the last couple of seasons. You know, you look at their provinces, if Leinster and Munster are playing any of the Welsh provinces, it's, you know, they're used to beating our players. So uh, it's going to be the Cardiff factor, I think, which is ultimately hopefully going to be the difference. But I am very, very wary that, like you, I think that Ireland are due a big performance and, you know, there's no better game really for them to pull it out. Let me just make a, a statement and then I'll ask you just to give your view on it. A lot of past Welsh players have said to me that they now believe if Wales are 
they're all thereabouts with about 20 to go, that their fitness, their discipline, their hoil, or whatever you like to call it, is now probably enough to see it through where it wasn't necessarily before. And therefore, I think it's really important that Wales don't get off to a bad start because of all the teams that are able to close out you know, leads, Ireland are probably as good as anyone around at doing that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, um, like I mentioned earlier, they, the players at Ireland are coming over. They know how to win big games in tense situations and get over the line, whether it be for their, for their province or for Ireland. So, you know, the Welsh psyche is an incredible thing. I think it's always been a hallmark of Gatlin's teams. Yeah, um, I can remember you know, I played in the first game he was in charge of up in England in Twickenham, and we should never have won that game. We were totally, you know, second best by a mile. But for some, by hook or crook, for the last 20 minutes, he had sort of brainwashed us that we were fitter than everybody else and, you know, more organised, and we saw it through, and that's been his hallmark. You know, I don't think Wales over the last 11 years have played and made, there's been patches when they played some fantastic rugby, but it's just been about sheer doggedness and going for the 80 minutes and, and discipline. You mentioned discipline and that's huge against Ireland because once they get into your 22 Ireland, they are, they're a machine, they're a well machine, they're very difficult to turn over and they invariably come away with points. So, it's a fascinating battle. It's a big concern of mine as well as the emotional side of it all. I think the Welsh team looked a little bit short in that second half. And whether that was all the off-field stuff that happened before, you know, the regions and what have you, and it would have been a lot going on, you know, have they got that emotion inside them to go again? Now, that sounds a bit stupid because the Grand Slam decider, but, you know, they're really going to have to sort of just be fresh mentally and physically to, to beat Ireland. Just from my point of view, looking at it, nobody's managed expectations in this tournament, have they? Um, no. Ireland were expected to beat England. Uh, England were expected to beat Wales in Cardiff. And now the boot's sort of on the other foot. Ireland are probably coming slightly as underdogs, which may suit them. And Wales, can they carry the expectation? And that's why I think fantastic game to look forward to, um, not knowing what the outcome really is going to be and whether Wales can manage that what is going to be a huge expectation this week? Yeah, you're spot on. I think every game that the team has gone into, you're expecting them to win. They've probably fallen short, haven't they? So I think that is, for a lot of these players as well, I think, you know, 17, I think it worked out on of the 23 that played up in Scotland, you know, 17 of those players have never won a championship. I think only three or four have won a Grand Slam. So this whole week, for a lot of those players, is going to be something new to them, how you cope with that expectation. Ireland, like you say, are underdogs traditionally. They thrive on that. Traditionally, Wales are not very good at being favourites. So that's what makes it all the more fascinating. I think the referee is going to have a, a big bearing on the game. Uh, you look at the England game, Wales give away just three penalties. And and if we, I think if Wales do that on Saturday, they win the game. Um, if you were only giving them away three penalties at international level, you're invariably going to win the game. So that discipline side of it and handling the emotion of the week, the build-up of the week uh, for all those players who've never done it before. And, and that's what I say, you know, on the flip side, Ireland, you know, they, they, they're used to that. So it's, uh, it's it really is a fascinating matchup and it's just going to get bigger and bigger by the end of the week. Can I just add this to it? And as a final uh, quick question, Martin, Warren Gatlin's last game, that's going to be emotional all round. That can go one of two ways, possibly. Yeah. What sort of effect do you think that will have? Uh, as a player, I don't think you read too much into that, if I'm completely honest. I think you've got a job to do. You've got to go particularly to get a modern-day player. You've got all your processes to think of, your line of calls. 
you know, it's Joe Schmidt's last Six Nations game as well, isn't it? You know, not, a lot of people are not uh, quite forgetting about that as well. So we want to go out on a high. So th- there is that added spice of, you know, there always has been with Wales Island, whether it was what, you know, Gatland and what happened to him when he was in Ireland. And I was pretty acrimonious the way they finished. But yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of emotion around the, on the place on Saturday. I think you've seen that in Alan Wynne Jones post match interviews after the Scotland landing. Say, say, say Alan Wynne, please. Sorry, Alan Wynn. <laughs> but Saint Alan Wynn, yes, he is. Uh, I think there's a statue on the way of Alan, but <laughs> you've seen that. You've just seen that. I think post Scotland and post England wins, even in the heat of that moment. You know, he's referring to the off the field stuff. I know he's asked been asked questions about it, but you know, will that will all that emotion over the last couple of weeks will that come back and hurt them? I, I I've got a back wheels because it's in Cardiff, and you know they they've got a knack of winning at the moment. But like I mentioned earlier, this is the best team that has come to Cardiff to try and spoil the party. So that it's a very nervous five or six days for us in Wales. Well, Martin, I wish Wales all the luck that they wish England, so thank you very much. Yeah, I bet you <laughs> thank you very much. Great to speak to you again. Top man. Cheers. Cheers, much. Why don't we turn our attention to the Irish? Because they are still in a chance of winning the tournament, but they've obviously got to go to Cardiff. We've got the former Ireland and Lions prop on the line, Paul Wallace. Hello, Paul. Hi, Brian. How are you? Okay. Is it too simplistic to say that Ireland are you know, back on track? Um, we're, we're further back on track than we were at the start of the season. Yeah, yeah no, I think we, we are. Are we hitting the heights that we did last season? Probably still not yet, but uh, it's decidedly better than the, the earlier performances in the tournament. Um, you know, well outplayed by England against Scotland. We, we, there's no fluidity. Uh, and a lot of the key players are coming back in. But I think what was most impressive on Sunday was the key parts of Ireland's game. You know, we're very reliant on a dominant line-out. And uh, that was very, very strong. And it's, it's, it's most of Ireland's scores generally start from a line-out. Uh, if not directly, then indirectly to try to come from that. Um, but I thought the way they held on to possession uh, the Irish runners they were not running at players they were running very good running lines where they got soft shoulders they were great footwork especially with the likes of Larmer in there so they were always getting to contact on their own terms and Ireland were able to recycle the ball quite well which really led to that ridiculous first half where Ireland was about 95% uh, territory and possession. You know, possession, anyhow, territory was close today in the 19th. L- listen, well. hold on, hold on. France had five seconds in your 22. Yeah, something like that, wasn't it? One <laughs> kick, and it could have been a try as well. It was a, a, a centimetre more, and they could have got a try out of it, which would have been uh, pretty bad. Paul, so I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what was interesting to me, and I, this was beca- it became more apparent, certainly at least to me, was that the thing Ireland were really missing was the first choice second row pairing. Not just the lineup, but all sorts of other things. And I think that's been a huge, huge issue for them. And, and this is the other big positive. Devon Toner, when he plays, you know, Ireland is a world class lineup with Peter Romani as well. I think he's probably the best back row player um, in opposition and, and on his own ball. But that same lineup played against Argentina in November really struggled until Toner came off the bench. Then Toner should have shown why he's needed within the side. But uh, against the, what is or should be a good French defensive lineup, we were very clinical. And uh, it's a, a key part to Ireland's game is that line-out. And, uh, 
you know that that that's why I think they'd be probably happiest with that. And, and the other set pieces as well, the scrum, Keen Healy gave Vanda a bit of a a rough time, and uh, but also they were they were very clinical. You know, the Keith Earls try that that was that was video analysis. They did he he'd started at scrum half. They knew they were going to do that inside pass. They knew Vanda would run out of the line, and uh, you know exploited it very well. I was a bit anxious in the earlier part of the game though that we weren't converting chances with all the. Um, domination, uh, you know, not even just the 20, inside the 10, 10 metres from the line, we weren't scoring. But then again, very few sides get get that much time uh, on, on the line that early in the game. And yeah, there was maybe one occasion where it, it, it should have just been simple hands with, with a four on two. Uh, they went for a skip pass and we butchered one chance. Uh, you know, there's a couple of others, you know, Ringrose uh, just knocking on at the last second when it went from the, the catch. Uh, but by and all, I thought uh, tactically um, there was a great game plan there and Ireland went about executing it very well. Great time to play France because they played you back into fantastic form going into uh, into Cardiff. And I was in Cardiff for the England game and obviously as an Englishman, it's it's a tough place to go. Great atmosphere in the second half, really. The Welsh got going, but... What's it like for an Irishman going to Cardiff, and especially in, in Cheltenham Cup week as well? What what will that be like for the players? And 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 given how much the the Irish boys obviously play against the Welsh boys in the in the Pro 14. Yeah, well, back in my day, we always won in Cardiff. Rather, it's the only place our Irish team seems to win away from home. The last couple of times out, it's been Wales have won. It, it, it's quite a funny one and always quite hard to call the Irish Welsh game. And uh, yeah, you look at club level, uh, our, the Irish sides are certainly the upper hand there, especially Munster and Leinster um, in the Pro 12. You'll always see them at the top uh, top end there. Uh, but there's a, diff- it's a difference when uh, Welsh players put on the, the Welsh jersey. Maybe the, there isn't as much emphasis put on the club game there as there is in Ireland, performance-wise, in that you get a lot of Welsh players who, who don't seem to perform to the same standards, and then you see them with a red jersey, and they, there's certainly that extra level. So, so, so that is one thing. Going to Cardiff, yeah, it's always a hard one to call. We're always confident going there, but uh, that doesn't mean we're going to win. I think with with that uh, French performance, though, even with the, the run that Wales are on, you know, I thought England were we're unlucky. I think they just stopped playing in the second half when they were in Cardiff. I don't think that's going to happen. It'd be quite emotional as well. I know, obviously, it's Warren Gatlin's last name, but for Joe Smith as well, from the Irish perspective, his last Six Nations game, this is this is going to be huge for the Irish guys there. And, uh, you know, they, they, they certainly won't want to, to, to leave the last Six Nations game as uh, losing. And uh, albeit, it'll probably mean an English uh, championship win if we're to go and win there. It'll, it'll still be well worth it for any second. Paul, just, just fine. <laughs> Finally, um, I spoke to Martin Williams about this and I was saying Wales previously, they conspired to try and lose games where they should probably have won. But now, if you get in towards the last 20 minutes, their fitness and their belief and so on, you're tending to think, actually, they probably will do this because they're starting to have a pattern. Now, Ireland, I think, are one of the best sides at defending leads because they are tactically very astute. The halfbacks are tactically, usually when they're on form, are, they make the right decisions. Now, I therefore think it's really beholden to Ireland to try and get the game early on, take control of it, and then keep it there. You know, they'll have periods when obviously they're under pressure. But are you confident enough that the players who matter are on form sufficiently to do that? 
Yeah, look, the halfbacks, uh, as, as Robert testified, it's all about the possession you're given. And the Irish forwards were not given good possession, whether it was set piece or, or you know, phase rugby. There was no quality ball there. Um, a couple of senior players were trying to play themselves back into form. They hadn't played a lot of rugby this season, um, you know, Six and Murray in particular. Uh, so I, I think that had, has had a point. Um, the break, I think, resting a lot of players against Italy has given a fresh impetus. Uh, Gary Ringrose coming into the side is a huge player for Ireland as well. He gives that X factor. I thought he was an outstanding game. Would have been my man of the match, uh, although James Ryan really stood up as well. But going there, you know, the, the Welsh line-out, I think that could be an area of weakness for them. Uh, it has been for Ireland so far, but I think we managed to sort it out. Rory Best's throwing was excellent as well. And I do think that's one area. And the other one is our kicking game. I think if you can get the ball in behind, you know, Adams and uh, North, I think there's Ireland were so good at, at you know, moving the ball wide, drawing the, the, the wingers up and kicking in behind. So I think we, we, we have a very good kicking game and whether that will be utilised to the same effect against Wales uh, remains to be seen. But, you know, we know Wales are a very dangerous side. They're scored some great tries, got great pace, and great talent out wide. But it's up front. I just uh, I have a feeling after looking at that Irish performance, I think, you know, up front we might just do Wales. Well, we obviously hope so as Englishmen. Um, you know, I, I don't 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 get this anti-English thing in there that you have to lose just to to deny us something. You know, <laughs> you know mature. It's all right. Those days are long gone. <laughs> Paul, it's great to speak to you. Look after yourself. Cheers, mate. Thank Bye, you. guys. Bye now. Well, a quick word about France. What can you say? God, they were awful, weren't they? I. I... <laughs> You know, at one point, they actually kicked a line out. The throw was so bad, the second row kicked it forward. I mean, this, well, the, there was this all, should not happen in international. It the, just shouldn't. There was one point when the scrum half actually kicked it out. The, it was at the back of a ruck, and it, he wasn't very happy with it. So he sort of just kicked it towards the fly half. Off of you. And it's like, I mean... The, but what it, about this? I mean, you're on your line. I mean, Keane Healy, fair play to him, he knew the laws, and had he managed to get his hand a bit further over, we would have scored. But what about try, even trying to play from there? What is the point of doing that? If it wasn't, if it wasn't so serious, it, it would be... I mean, it is comical, but it, they don't look like they want to be there. That's the worrying thing. They don't... Mm. That's, that's, I mean, the coach clearly has got to go because it's, we had this conversation about France before and you don't need to know what's going on behind the scenes to know whether the coach has got... A handle on the team. You just you just watch them play, and he clearly hasn't got any handle on them whatsoever. So it's damaging the Six Nations. It's incredibly damaging to French rugby, and it's almost as if the players don't want to play for their national side. Yeah. Now, whether that's a coach-related problem or it's a deeper problem around their club game becoming so strong and the players just almost not interested in playing international rugby... There is a serious, serious problem there. That, I tell you what is, I mean, what is quite markedly apparent is the ones who haven't played that much have represented at age group level, and they are very talented as well, they keep producing these, seem to me far more engaged than the others. They are far more engaged, but, but it's not fair to give... to. Put it all on them to no, get no, them out of, of this mess. Not. No, but no, it's because not. Because actually, if they're not careful, if they put them in too early and, and expect them to get them out of trouble, they're actually going to damage them as well. So the whole thing is a complete shambles. So, you know, in the end, it, it's it's got to go right back to the top of the organisation, which is Bernard Laporte. 
now he's the president of the French Federation. So he he's coached the national team. He's he, he's been coaching the club game. He, he's got to f- fix this. And the number one thing is to get a coach who who clearly has got a handle on the players, and they've got no idea tactically what what they're trying to do. No. There's no shape. They're not even scrapping. I mean, in the good old days, they'd at least have had a good scrap, but they're not yeah. even doing that now. I mean, I know they can't in the well, old... Well, look, we could, but... we could go on and on. Let, 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 let's leave it there because there are. I'm running out of... Um, what's the opposite to a superlative? I don't know. No. Anyway, <laughs> perhaps we can ask our next guest, Ali Hogg, the former Scotland back row. He's on the line. Hello, Ali. How you doing, Brian? You OK? Yes. Look... A very lengthy injury list, and I, I know sides are supposed to cope with this and have depth, but there are only so many you can cope with, especially in there. But coming to Twickenham, never an easy thing. But how do you think Gregor is going to approach this? What 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 does he say? Does he say, "Look, just go out and enjoy yourself," or you scrap, or or what? I think the key for Scotland is to find a bit of form, which they did a little bit in the second half against Wales. Again, I thought they were poor uh, in the first half, making too many mistakes, and in the second half they actually um, sort of really dominated Wales. But again, unfortunately, those kind of those little errors are creeping in, so balls into touch, drop balls, just not being accurate enough, and that's ultimately what sort of cost them the Six Nations. Yes, injuries haven't helped, and they've kind of disrupted a little bit of it, but ultimately it's just been their the inaccuracies. So I think from McGregor's point of view, it's just go out there and let's just execute what what we can control so that's where I just make sure the passes go to hand but we, we get into the right shape and, and we play um, how we want to play and build confidence going into it because to be fair to England when, when they, they actually attack they've, they've been they've been a, a revelation this Six Nations compared to where last year and even in the autumn the way they're attacking in the shape and in Scotland really have to sort of look after the ball because if, if they don't then they'll not get it back or if they do it'll be from a kickoff. I mean it's strange because this point about accuracy it runs through every team but Scotland in particular and Gregor in particular has been trying to feature this and when I see wingers uh, overrunning the ball by a yard or two you know, in scoring positions I think that is yes it's inaccurate but it's also ill-disciplined as well in a, in a, in a sense because discipline to me is not just not punching people it's you know, being in the right place and doing the right thing at the right time is that just a question of form is it a matter of them playing uh, in unfamiliar combinations or just um, not doing it at the right time. I, I find it difficult to, to know what, what to say about that. To be honest, I think it's a little bit of everything, isn't it? It's, um, you're right, it's that discipline of being in the right place at the right time and executing it. And, and there's probably a factor in everything. A little bit of lack of confidence. You know, they're a good win against Italy, they maybe the last 10 minutes they dropped off. But then from then on, they've not really put that sort of performance in since then. And you're right, you see, it's just getting those little bits right that make a big difference, especially international rugby. You only maybe get one, two chances to score a try. So when you do get that opportunity, you've really got to sort of nail it. Um, and that's what it lacked. And, and the, the injuries haven't helped. Do you know what I mean? The, the, unfortunately, all Injuries, the back three and the back row. So it's, um, it just seems to sort of be two positions that have really sort of hit them hard, and really sort of testing the sort of strength and depth. So, um, hopefully, we've also got Hamish Watson came back at the weekend, and, and he he made a big difference coming on, and I imagine he'll start this this, this weekend, um, and 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 just getting that confidence, especially last game situation away in Twickenham is also a tough place to go, especially with England they're playing at the moment, and and just really get a sort of performance to sort of hang your hat on. They can be proud of sort of into the us getting into this build up to the World Cup later in the year. It just feels to me as if this is a, a huge psychological battle for Scotland this weekend as well. They've, you know, they, they've been very unlucky with the injuries. We get all of that. 
that they probably really not not got to where they thought they would be during this Six Nations. They came in sort of full of hope. There seems to be a little bit of bad blood around after last year's game up at Murrayfield. So Scotland are going to face an onslaught this weekend, aren't they? And it's just how you know how much stomach are they going to have for the fight with it being the last game of the of the Six Nations where things haven't gone their way. Uh, yeah, I think it was Scotland and England. I imagine they'll have some fight in there. But <laughs> you, you're right. I think well, even if you go back to two years ago, uh, that's playing more proper, more personal. They went down there. That was the first chance in, in a while they had the, the team to go down and beat England and England blew, blew them off the park, really. Um, so I think they'll be, they'll be conscious of that. Um, obviously, last year, um, I think Scotland totally dominated England in that game and got it tactically right on, on the day. I think, obviously, they'll be looking this week at the, sort of the ins and outs of how England will be playing and where they can target and where they weaknesses are. It'll be interesting to see what team England play against Scotland. Obviously, they went with a big sort of powerful backline against uh, Italy. Whether they do the same against Scotland or whether they maybe go back to sort of more balanced uh, backline, it'll be interesting to see how Eddie Jones sort of views that with, with Scotland's injuries and also sort of the midfield partnerships that Scotland can put out. Um, so, yeah, I think Scotland built for it. Uh, there's no sort of two questions about that. And I think you go back to what I said before, it's just about Scotland being accurate. And if they're not, then England will punish them. And the more Scotland can frustrate England and keep the ball off them, keep them, get through phases and sort of really challenge England, which they haven't done in, in, in the previous games, then we could get a, a game of it. So hopefully that's the case anyway. Ali, it's great that you've uh, spoken to us. Thank you very, very much. Not a problem. Cheers, Brian. Ali Hope, former Scotland back row. I just add this. This may be old school, I don't know. I think it still pertains. If points are on offer in close games, take them. Always. Big moment, 69 minutes, Scotland are four points down, kickable penalty, go to the corner and back them all. Now, I wasn't aware of this. I was aware they weren't very good at them, but they've scored one mauling try from 102 mauls in the last four years. Now, chances are, under pressure, probably not going to be... Number two, is it? When you've got good kickers. I, I simply do not understand that. If you've got this laissez-faire approach, Finn Russell, or whatever, there are times when someone, either from the bench or the captain, has to say, no, 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 but no, you, we're not doing this. You've got to be able to read the situation. Last weekend, Ireland went for the corner right from the off. Why? Because they knew they were going to beat France. They mm-hmm. scored. They scored from the first line out within two minutes. Yeah. So every other line, every other penalty they got, they pretty much went to the corner. I think Johnny Sexton kicked one penalty just before half time. But when you're in a tight game like Scotland were in, and within with a chance of winning, it drives me mad as well. As you might imagine, you've got to take your points when they're on offer in in close internationals one of the problems you've got now with some international matches they're so one-sided that the players have got out of of the mindset of how do you yeah. win a tight two-point or three-point game because there's the, 11 minutes left it's a long and, time yeah and you know you go in they have to kick to you the one point up chances are they're probably not going to compete as fiercely in and around goal kicking areas as they would do. Therefore, ball becomes easier, have more options, and so on and so on. Well, it's the psychological effect of being four points up or down or one point yep. up or down. The difference that makes, and it's a touch on another favourite subject, is the blessed drop goal. Yep. And again, in tight games, England down in Cardiff, just before half-time, take a drop goal. Go ten points clear yes. instead of being seven. And, and then you might 
go another three points just after half time. Suddenly, you could be 16 3 up yep. in Cardiff instead of being 10 9, which is what happened. And those, I, I think players have, have almost, they don't play in enough tight, close games where you're actually, the, the lead is changing hands. Mm. And, and it's a World Cups come down when you get to the final stages of, of, kicking a penalty or dropping a goal. How, how many times have we seen it? Quite seen a lot. It? Well, of course, Italy's continuing wars, and I uh, feel sorry for Conroe Shea because he's a good man, he's a good coach, and I know that he is firmly of the opinion that there is a lot of talent coming through, and that shows in the age group rugby he's confident that in five years' time, when he won't be there, that Italy you know, will be a decent side. Can we afford to wait for that? Eddie Jones has come out and said he's in favour of promotion and relegation. So am I. I've been for a long time. The Corsi Club, which is the Six Nations Committee, or Munich Committee, I don't know, God knows what you call them. Six Nations Council. Six Nations Council is it now? Well, they've they've been promoted. I simply say this, and I'm going to maintain this because it's right. You cannot get Tier 2 teams to be self-sufficient if you do not give them an automatic right to the top competition. Now, I don't care whether... It's every two years, three years, but an agreed period. But they have got to have the wherewithal. And I'm not even bothered when people say to me, Georgia are no better than Italy. That's not the point. At some point, teams will be. There's a shift taking place at the moment, isn't there, in terms of what we haven't talked about, world rugby and all the rest of it. But something has to change. And and this Six Nations, I think, has been a really disappointing one for me, watching it personally. I don't think... Well, especially been... when you line up the expectation, which Expect... was genuine and probably well-placed, actually. I think it was well-placed, but you name me an outstanding game in this Six Nations. The atmosphere in Cardiff was electric. It was an amazing... I, I mean, I didn't like us losing. I was down there, but it was a, an amazing atmosphere. And actually, it was a pretty brutal second half. There was some high-quality stuff in that second half, both defensively and offensively, particularly by by Wales, and England soaked it up for quite long periods. But there hasn't been a game that's, that's stood yet the hair up on the back of your neck, to be honest. And we've gone into so many games knowing what the result's going to mm. be, and that's not good for the Six Nations. Scotland have dropped off in this tournament. France and Italy have never even started. Well, France had the first half, that first Friday night for 40 minutes, and you thought, Wow, what's happened? And then second half, they were awful and they've never recovered. Italy have probably, you know, they're, they're trying hard, but but this is not about trying hard, is it? This is about winning. I mean, Conor Rocher will point to the fact that they've scored two tries in every game. I mean, and that is something. Yeah, but... and they've lost 21 games on the bounce yep. in, in the Six Nations. So how do you try and grow the game when Georgia are knocking on the door it might not. It might be Germany in five years' time, tw- ten years' time. You, Russia, who knows? You've got, I think, the timer and and the Southern Hemisphere and and their championship, keeping out Fiji, Samoa, and and um, Tonga all this time. Something is in the air, and something has to change. How they go about? Well, it, it has to change because world rugby, I think, hopefully, are finally realizing it. If they don't do this, they are going to just be doling cash out all the time to tier two nations, not only to keep them afloat, well, just to keep them afloat, yeah. because they will never... You cannot go to sponsors and say, this is as far as we'll get. Yeah. Well, because they might take a punt if you can get there automatically. They won't do otherwise. You just won't. Well, and, and that's why you've got to break it up a bit. You imagine going to Tbilisi and playing in front of 60,000 mm. in, in Tbilisi. Why not? Next 
12, 24 months, I think there's going to be a lot of change. Why don't we speak to Nigel Owens? We haven't spoken to him much during the Six Nations, but I'm pleased to say he's on the line now. Hello, Nigel. Brian, how's it going? Uh, okay, a few topics that we've been asked to raise. Forward passes. They all won. Do you want to remind us, it's fairly simple, actually, what the actual law is? Yeah, it, it, it is very simple. It's when the ball is is thrown forward towards the opposition's goal line. Now, what isn't as simple is that when you do see things on the the TV angle um, at home or watching on, on the television, it doesn't give you sort of really a very accurate, unless it's a clear and obvious one, obviously, but it, it may look worse on, on telly or even look better on telly, depending on where the camera is. If you imagine a referee is, is sort of running in line with the ball, then he's in the perfect position to judge that. If the camera is, you know, five, eight, ten metres behind where the ball is passed, it's looking at a slight angle, then it may look more forward than it is, or it may show a pass which is forward on the telly, but actually isn't forward. But uh, the basically of the law is, is quite simple. You know, if the ball is, is thrown towards the opposition goal line. Now, when you're running at speed and you pass that ball flat, or backwards, which you're quite entitled to do flat as well. If you're running at speed and you pass that ball flat, then that ball, if it travels, say, across to the next player 10, 12, 15 metres away, then that ball will have travelled the same speed as you're travelling when you pass it. So that ball is always going to land somewhere which is more forward than, than where you pass it on a flat path. Now, if you pass it sort of backwards then it may land in line. But uh, if you pass it forward from the beginning, then obviously it'll, be, it'll land a lot forward. So it's, Nigel, it's, it, it, it is quite a simple law, but uh, it's not that simple when well, you try I mean, to it Well, I mean, it used to be, you know, di- direction of hands. Were they facing flat? Were they facing behind? Well, has that gone as a guideline or not? You, you don't want to judge the hands too much. You just want to judge, did the ball leave the hands towards the opposition's goal line? So if you start judging it left his hands backwards, left his hands forwards, then the way that your hand is passing the ball may not give you an accurate reflection or picture of it. So it's basically, has he thrown it forward? Has it been passed towards his opposition goal line, really? It's quite a simple one, but then when you try to break it down and judge it from different TV angles and everything, then it becomes complication. So the way that the referees will judge a forward pass now is, and the same thing they'll tell the TMOs, if you think it's clearly forward, then you come in and say forward pass and, and you may review it, but it needs to be a clear picture, not sort of a, a 50-50 one. bit like handball in football in the penalty area then, is it? Sort of. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, yeah, this, this I whole... I fancy refereeing that, that's for sure. Uh, especially in the, in the last minute, last Wednesday for in, in Paris. But this whole TMO and VAR in, in, in football, and I know we've been around this before, but you, you on the, in the middle... Are you happy that that this is assisting you, and actually you wouldn't want to go back to where we were without it? I think it it, it certainly does assist you in getting key decisions right that would have been humanly impossible for you not to get them otherwise. Where we have probably let ourselves down as a whole group of officials is we've sometimes been judging things which are not clear and obvious, and then it becomes you know, a huge talking point where the TMO is, is used in, in not the way that it's supposed to be used. And it should be used to back up the referee and make a decision that was 
humanly impossible for the referee to see or something happened, an act of foul play happened behind the officials on the fields back and there was no way they could have seen it and then the TMO comes in and sort of cleans it up afterwards really. So I think that you're not going to get rid of technology from the game and I don't think I'd want to see a game without technology now because in getting those big defining moments right most of the time, we get them right. We just need to make sure that we only use them when we really have to. And the key message that we've been discussing as a group of referees and officials, particularly for Six Nations, is that with the on-field officials will do all they can to make those decisions themselves and will only then use the TMO as a backup when it was just impossible for them to, to see it or to rule on it in, in real time. And if we do that then the technology is a good thing for the game. If we get over-reliant on it and use it when we shouldn't really need to be using it, that's when it becomes an issue and, and, and a talking point then and, and takes away from the game itself a bit. Nigel, I understand you're going to be the assistant referee for what should be a cracker, Italy-France. Well, I am, yes. Uh, Matt Carley, um, congratulations to him, is refereeing his first game uh, in the Six Nations. So I'm on touch for him out in Italy-France. Yeah. It, it's, it's a wonderful can win, really, because Italy-France put a lot on it for a very different reason to the other yeah. games. Then, obviously, you've got Wales-Ireland. If Wales win, they'll, they become Grand Slam champions. And, and if they don't, then it'll all come down to the final game in Twickenham. So every single game on Saturday has something on it and and, and it's, it's wonderful for the Six Nations so let's hope that you have a wonderful finish um, to the tournament this year Nigel always great to speak to you thank you once again pleasure both all the best bye bye Nigel Owens top referee look I you know we've spoken to Nigel many many times about all sorts of things in the TMO and I would like I would like to go back to the actual scoring actual scoring and foul play I would make possibly one concession and it's got to be this the clear and obvious mistake in the lead-up for the two phases before, if the TMO has to watch more than one or two replays of anything to decide he's not allowed to refer it because it's not clear and obvious. If he can see it on the first one, he thinks that's absolutely obvious, then fine. But if he has to search through it and then eventually says, well, you may want to look at this, that's not good enough. No, no, no. Yeah, but I think Nigel's right there. Nigel, you know, he's... Because he's a really experienced referee, I think he does take things out of the TMO's hands. Yes, and and the, the not bat- as easy, I suppose, for someone. Not as easy for a young starting, ref. And yeah. sometimes the TMOs appear to me they want to be the star of the show, and actually you've got to you've got to manage the referee in the middle has got to almost manage the TMO so they don't interfere too much. The technology is not going to go away. The debates they're, they're going on in football now, and, and they'll they'll carry on in. You should r- just ask. Did you see this in one go? Did a video to this TMO. Did you see it in one or two replays? Because if you didn't, sorry, it's not clear and obvious. Yeah. I'm not even going to look at it. Yeah. So don't don't bother me. Yeah, but, that, but that's that's where the referee has got to be experienced enough yeah. to to effectively, in some cases, you can you can almost sense they're overruling the TMO if yeah. they're an experienced referee. But then the risk they then take is they've yep. got to be right. Yeah, of course. Otherwise, then they're going to get vilified later. Well, it's funny because everyone said. You'll still have human error, blah, 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 but it's fine. And that's fine when it goes for you. Yeah. But no one forgives it when it goes against you. That's the problem, isn't it? Time now to switch to the women's Six Nations. Very pleased to say we've got Natasha Moe Hunt, the England scrum half on the line. Hello, Moe. Hello, how are you? I'm OK. Ben Ryan last week said that England should win by 40 points. Well, actually, you didn't. You won by 55 uh, without <laughs> yes. conceding any. Uh, how, how do you feel? 
Oh, yeah, it was pretty awesome, to be fair, like um, quite surreal. So we'd gone out and um, had a bit of a target to try and, and get no points scored against us for a couple of games. So it was really, really important to us to to try and set that marker and especially against that Italian team because they've, they've had an outstanding tournament so far. So it was um, a real massive statement for us. There are pros and cons playing at Twickenham. The, the pros, it's a great stadium. It's a national stadium. It's a great honour to play there. Not so good when you're rattling around with a few thousand people. What was it like at Sandy Park? It was nearly four, wasn't it? Yeah, it was awesome. So we had like over 10,500 fans. All credit to um, Exeter Chiefs, everyone at Sandy Park and everyone that had um, part to play in that because it makes such a difference for us to stand there and sing the anthem and have it sung back like it was. It was just honestly like a goosebump moment and um, one that will stay with me for a very, very long time. So, yeah, it was pretty awesome to be there, but... There is no feeling like running out at Twickenham. Um, I know we don't get quite the big... Well, we do tend to get about 10,000 there, as well, but obviously they're just spread out quite a bit more. But when the, um, the flames go up and you run out and it's the home of English rugby, it is, is a very special place. I was just going to say that it's because there's a lot of people do stay behind to watch the women's internationals mm. there, and it, and look going going to Exeter, which was fantastic. Doncaster, great crowd up there as well. Taking the game around the country is fantastic, but you know we've all been lucky enough and privileged enough to to play at, at Twickenham, and you know I'm I'm sure it's the same for you. It, it, regardless of whether there's ten or twelve thousand people staying behind to watch, it's still very special. Yeah, it is, it is a really special time. I, mean, I remember playing there um, against New Zealand after um, the boys had just played New Zealand and they won like in the dire moments. And um, I've, I've never not needed a warm-up as much as that. Like, honestly, <laughs> we, we ran out onto the pitch and there was a slight delay. So I think the warm-up went down to something like 15 minutes. And honestly, I was just so excited. And so, like the whole situation was so surreal. The crowd stayed in because the boys had just done like a great thing as well, and um, it was amazing. Like it, I can't fault it. Like obviously, playing it's two really complete um, differences. Playing at Sandy Park in front of that crowd, and there were so many people that stayed behind after that wanted to meet us, have us like have signatures and and photos with us, and we loved that. Like anything we can do to give back, especially young girls that are um, seeking to play the game in the future and stuff. Like it is a real special thing for us. On the other hand, as well, like the the top of your game is elite and it's the home of English rugby, so it is just such a special time to be able to run out there. Well, just just remind everybody, entry is free. It kicks off at 7.30 after the England-Scotland game, so get along there, support what will be a Grand Slam. And look, this has been presumptuous, obviously, but to be fair, Scotland, you know, they are not uh, in the same ballpark as you. And I just wonder, therefore, how do you go around setting the targets when you've been so dominant in this championship? I think, um, yeah, to reiterate your point, um, it is free entry and we just want to get as many people there. We've actually got some some really great fans that um, come in after the gates open. So, obviously, gates open to let fans out from the, the men's. Obviously, we don't want anyone to leave, but naturally they do. And we've got loads of really loyal supporters that actually come in. Like, my family will be coming in after the boys' game and stuff like that. So, even if you haven't got tickets for the men, you can still get into the ground and, and support, come and support us. And, yeah, as you say, hopefully we're on for a Grand Slam. Um, it's definitely one that we never really had our sights on. It's the classic whenever you're in the sport. I know people probably get bored of us when if we do media and we say it's one game at a time, but it is because as soon as you take your eye off what's next and you look ahead to the future, then that's when the stumbling blocks come and, and you actually mess up. So, yeah, we um, we spoke about it after the game against Italy on the weekend and just said, like, this is 
what we all had in the back of our heads, but now it's a, a realistic target and we're on for the Grand Slam. Like Scotland, everyone seems to play their best game against England. I know that we, we always know we have to raise our game, but obviously uh, the scoreline hasn't reflected it, but the way that Wales came out against us, they played really well and it's always the same. So we just need to make sure that we do our, our job and we'll have some targets going in and that will be our focus. And, and we know that we haven't performed as well as we wanted to as well. We can be a lot more dominant, we think, than than what we've shown. So that's going to be the target going on for this weekend and, and we really hope that we can put a display out there. Well, Mo, don't take your eye off the ball, but do bring the Grand Slam home. Best of luck. Thanks for speaking to us. Oh, no, thanks for having me on. Cheers. That's OK. Natasha, Mo Hunt, the England scrum half, they will do that because, and they should in, in certain senses because they're pros, but they are still performing. You've got to put the performances in. They've been dominant. And then it's the challenge, obviously, from the Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand in particular. Yeah, and I think, obviously, Lee, just look at the score lines there, 51-7, 41-26, 51-12, 55-0. That's clearly a reflection of where the programme has been taken in yeah. terms of professionalism. And people are knocking them and saying, well, who are you playing against? That's not their fault. No. It's for everyone else to catch up. Exactly. And the Southern Hemisphere, you know, when they go to a World Cup, yep. that's that's where they've got to benchmark themselves. And it is for the other countries in the Six Nations uh, to catch up, you know, you go back two or three years, and and it was Ireland would fancy their chances against England, so would France. Um, so they've obviously had a fantastic year, and good luck to them on Saturday. Well, just before we go for prediction time uh, for next weekend, let's look at the uh, World Rugby World League. There's been a statement from the LNRPRL. World Rugby has announced the organisation of a meeting bringing together several unions and the international players' bodies supposedly to discuss a project to create an annual Nations Championship. The San Francisco agreement reached in January 2017 by all stakeholders, including the French Rugby League and the Premier Rugby, represents a proportionate structure for all parties with an international calendar adopted until 2032. It appears that the new competition now changes its balance increasing the number of international matches, etc., etc. They're not happy about it, basically, are they? Uh, no, they're, they're completely <laughs> pissed off, to be honest. But, you know, World Rugby shouldn't allow this position to develop. If they've agreed something in 2017, having discussed it probably for two years to try and get an international calendar, all you do is open up all the old wounds around Regulation 9 and, and clubs threatening to... So why to... has this happened, then? Well, I suspect, and I don't know for sure, but it's, I suspect some of the unions who signed up to this, whether it's been driven by the Southern Hemisphere, whether it's been driven by Pichot, who clearly has got a, he's a big part to play in this. Maybe the New Zealanders don't like it. So they're actually trying to unpick an agreement that everybody thinks they signed up to in San Francisco in 2017. And if you start to unpick something that was agreed and certain people don't like that, then the lawyers will I'll be tell you, all branded. I'd say is- if you're supposed to be playing till 2032, bearing in mind where the broadcast landscape might be, bearing in mind that's that's ludicrous time. That's a ludicrous amount of time. It's a very long time. One of the challenges is getting an international schedule out for a yeah. long enough period in order to maybe they should go two World Cups. That's effectively three World Cups from from post-2019, so 2020 through to 2032, which is effectively a three World Cup cycle. Too long. 
to and, and that's the problem in the fast moving world that we're in now and CVC coming into Premiership Rugby they're clearly talking to the unions about the Six Nations um, and it's just everybody trying to unpick things and getting in a punch up which is classic rugby yeah well it'll be good for reporters that's all I can say what about next weekend Italy I think I back Italy to win their, their game against France you know France at the moment they're so you know I think Italy will have resolve I, I don't see what the French players going there will feel they have to gain <laughs> which is ridiculous but does anybody does anybody care <laughs> quite and that look Italy will want to win if Italy can win in in Rome against the French and they have beaten the French in Rome before yep. it you know Connor needs a win as well yep. in a sense so uh, who knows I mean I, I think it'll it's not going to be a great game I don't think uh, given the form that they've both shown but you know, you you can see Italy winning that game. Second game is down in the Principality, but let's leave that till last. England, Scotland. Well, well, one thing Scotland can't afford to do, like they did two years ago, is have a hooker sent to the same bin after two minutes, and then get hammered. I mean, because I, I mean, I, as I did say, it was all his fault, but it really did not help at all. You know, Scotland need to be in touch to to, to give England a game. I think they've got a better performance in them. I just can't see. Of the two teams, England need to win this more. And quite often it comes down to who needs it more. And I think irrespective of, uh, of that, England are at home as well. And I think that will be decisive. Well, I think also there's, there's, a, there's a bit of afters from last year, yes, isn't I mean, there, there is, up yeah. at Merrifield. And we've both been there where, where the, the following year or two, if there's a bit You've of afters... You've been quite resolute in the, if, if, in the changing room beforehand, haven't you? Yes. Quite resolute to... Um, and the, clearly there was a lot went on up at Merrifield that, that we perhaps weren't totally aware of, but players tend not to forget, and Eddie's stirring the pot this week. So I suspect that Scotland are in for a pretty rough ride at Twickenham, certainly on the field on Saturday. And then it will be sorted by that point. Wales will either be Grand Slam champions or it will be England's to take because if they win with the bonus point situation, they will win the title. Yeah, and I... I... I have a, just a little feeling about Ireland. I, I think that Wales have been incredibly resolute and they've had a fantastic uh, run. But this is a this is a very good Ireland side with some very good players, and they just haven't quite found any shape, any form, any consistency. They've been really poor, slow starters. They were slow starters last year. Remember, we talked about them in Paris. Sexton dropping that goal in in the last minute after forty two phases. They've been even slower this year. Whether that's on the back of too much expectation, they were going to win the Six Nations and, before and it injuries. started, and injuries and and everything else. This sort of everybody, nobody gave England a prayer. England battered them in Dublin. I think that took a huge toll. There were signs last week that Sexton's back to his best. He hadn't played much, remember, going into the that's Six true, Nations. Yeah. Neither had Conor Murray. They got they had some injuries up front. They they will want to finish on a high. They will want nothing more than to to stop Wales winning. So, I, I just think there's a there's a realistic chance of Ireland winning. No, there is a realistic chance, and I I, I do come back to this. Wales clawed you know sixteen three deficit down against France. France gifted them two tries, but they were good enough to take them. England didn't put the points on in the way they should have done in the first half, and again Wales caught them because. They had the fortitude and the technique and the skill to do that. But Wales, in my opinion, they can't afford 
for example, to go 10 points down against Ireland. You know, if they're within one score, I think they do have it definitely within them with the crowd to do that. I would worry from a Welsh point of view if they go big mint because the tactical discipline of, of a Sexton and Murray playing well is almost second to none to defending things like that. They do it re regularly with their provincial sides. They have done it at international level. If Wales are anywhere near with 20 minutes to go, I take, I take Wales. I just have that concern that if they don't start well like they didn't against England and they didn't against France, that Ireland are the sort of team that could put them away. So we will see. I think if I had to put, and I, I'm not a betting man, thank God of all the vices, I haven't got that one, I would still make Wales favourites. But as you say, nothing is beyond the realms of possibility. That's all we have time for on this week's Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Thank you to my co-host Rob Andrew and as always my producer Abby Patterson who as a Scot must be praying that Scotland actually get the finger out so there we go please subscribe to the podcast leave a review if you haven't done already but for now it's goodbye